Today's word comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 42. Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 42. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the, the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fail into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is word of God. I want to do a second message on Thanksgiving. And it's a bit of a strange text, maybe, to use for Thanksgiving. It's a hard-hitting text. And uh, usually some of these words are more often preached out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But this is uh, more often called the Sermon on the Plain um, out of Luke chapter you know, 6 and there, thereafter. And... Um, I want to talk about something that um, I don't usually do. I want to talk a little bit, just a little bit, about our politics, all right? Because um, it's really bad. It's like ugly and bad. And almost all the other, all the pastors I know, um, especially the ones that I respect, they're really miserable. <laughs> they're really miserable. And these are these are the pastors of churches, Christians. These are the Christians, and. Um, you know, they're, they're getting anger from the left wing and it usually has something to do with social justice and race. And there's anger from the right wing and often has something to do with masks and something about COVID. And then, of course, you know, you've got these factions going on. That, this, is like, this is a normal thing in America. And that's the churches. That's the churches. And we're not even talking about, so outside of the churches... Outside of the churches, so I'm 50 years old. And my family immigrated to the United States when I was five years old. So I've lived in the United States for 45 years. And um, I can't ever remember a time in America where there has been so much anger and hatred. And everybody's got a quick trigger temper, right? It's just like totally normal. And, you know, some of it is it's social media. Some of it is the Internet age because this isn't just a peculiarly American problem. This is happening all around the world. And um, it's destabilizing governments and cultures around the world. This is happening. But um, I think there's something that the Lord has to say. It has something to do with Thanksgiving it has to do with this passage. And so 
Um, let's get into it, okay? So part one, slow to anger and benefit of the doubt. Slow to anger and benefit of the doubt. Part two, American Thanksgiving advancing civility and peace. All right? I think this Thanksgiving is, I think, such an important holiday. And then right after Thanksgiving over, is over, we go right into Advent, which, of course, then we go into Christmas, which most people know is an incredibly important holiday. And I think it's incredible that America, we end our calendar year with Thanksgiving unto Advent, to Christmas, right? And um, so... But one of the most important things about Thanksgiving is civility, peace, how we look at our neighbors. And I want us to return to that, okay? And part three, the grace that runs over. That's what I want to talk about. The grace that runs over, okay? Um, part one, um, you know, this is uh, one of the nice things about uh doing a church like this. Um, in this season, literally from, you know, when I say season, I don't just mean the Thanksgiving season. I mean um, this crazy s- sequence of time like we call COVID, right? And um, so for months upon months, I've been thinking about this question, why is everybody so darn mad, right? Uh, everybody is so hair-trigger mad, and um, I get it. Um, we're kind of holed up in our own houses, and, uh, and we're lonely. And then, at least early on, people were nervous about their jobs and nervous about disease. And um, some people, that was a lot more justified than others, because tons of people, um, you know, if you were basically, you know, if you're in certain industries, you were going to be okay. Probably. In fact, some industries did very, very well. Right? But there are lots of people who lost their jobs. And maybe not in our circles, but when I go out to Native American Reservation, there is not a soul on that reservation who did not lose somebody to COVID. Like, they all know somebody who died of COVID. I don't know anybody who died of COVID, like, personally, except for people over there, right? So that was early on. And then we just had, and then it got weird, it got, um, apparently, there's something to do with the way think, people think about disease and anxiety. And there's a, there's a temperament. The social scientists know this, that there's certain kinds of people that are more oriented toward control. And apparently, they tend to prefer political liberalism. All right? And then there's some people that are more into, I don't really care. Just get these people off my back. And those people are oriented toward political conservatism. And then, then the George Floyd thing happened. Right? So it was already pretty miserable. Then George Floyd died. That video went up. And then our country went crazy, completely, just bonkers. And it's a little better. It's a little better. But not by much. And um, when we were in this confession of um, sin, I, I, I chose that passage, you know, Exodus chapter 34, where the Lord, it goes, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger. And I've, I've gone to that passage when we do that, you know, for those of you who are regulars at Revive, you know this isn't the first time that verse has, not, has come up in our confession of sin. Because I guess what I want to say to you is, I don't know what sins you confess when we go into that period, but if you are quick to anger about certain kinds of people that are making you really mad in our culture or in around you, that's probably sin. A lot of us would like to think that we are filled with righteous anger. Like, you, you're, you're bad. And then, like, okay, then we get up there and like, oh, you know? And, but let, let me say to you, if there's no Jesus 
in your anger, <laughs> and your anger isn't built for like protecting other people, especially and people who you really love, like like we talked about in our biblical justice series, the fatherless, you know, the widow, and the downtrodden minorities, right? Then probably, and especially if there's no grace and forgiveness when you're in your anger, the anger is just probably just sin. It's self-righteousness, not real righteousness. And it's probably sin. But our God is slow to anger. And isn't that so good? Because we, if you're really honest, that if you stand before a holy God, you know you deserve his displeasure. And he is slow to anger. And that's not just because he's nice. And he has fixed that upon us so that our relationship will be that way, so that Jesus will intercede, so that Jesus receives all the wrath and condemnation we deserve, so that he could give us infinite patience and steadfast love. Now, within that context, I want you to, I can't, you know, this verse that our, our sister read, this, it's, a, it's a convicting passage, is it not? But I wanted to, you to hear the whole passage so that you could hear the context. There, there's a portion I'm going to focus on, but I wanted you to feel the context. It starts off, why? if you love those who only love you, what good is that to you? <laughs> so, if you only love other people who have the same politics as you, what good is that to you? Let me say it that way. All right? If you love people who are only on the same team as you, um, I'm reading this very strange book. <laughs> this is what I did this week. Okay, I'm like you, you can probably hear my voice a little raspy because I'm fighting a cold. And I read this book called Tokyo Underworld. <laughs> and it was about the history of modern Japan. And you know what it basically said? That inside of modern Japan from World War II till even today, that there are factions of the Yakuza, the mafia, that are embedded with the government that formed, that formed the, the whole country. And you know how the Yakuza works? If you're on my team, then we love you and we got your back. But if you're not on my team, we kill those people over there because they're our enemy. And while I was reading this book, I knew I was going to preach this text. So, doesn't that sound so horrible? There's like, apparently in like 1945 on, there are two major mafia groups taking over Japan. Um, I won't try to say their names because I'll butcher, butcher it. But one of them, this is, this is wild, one of them is run by Koreans. So, I know, it's Japanese mafia. But at the top of the food chain of the Tosikai are Koreans. <laughs> so you got this guys and these guys, and they're running, like, they're, this, like there's, there's all kinds of good, there's kinds of, like, actually reasonable reasons, okay? Now, let me ask you this. When I was reading that book, I was thinking, Maybe the Republicans are just the Tosikai. <laughs> Maybe the Democrats are just the other guys. And if you're on my side, we love you. But if you're not, we hate you. Right? Um, verse 35. Love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. That's what the Lord Jesus says. That's what the Lord Jesus You will not find this in any like newspaper. You will not see this in the news. It will not be taught to you in your universities. But that's what the King of Kings says. Your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 
to the ungrateful and the evil. So maybe there's a set of people that you don't like and you think they are ungrateful and evil. But Jesus says very explicitly, God Almighty is kind to them. He's kind to them. So you should be too. And then you'll be like his son. Here's the part I want to be, um, I want to focus on. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Some of you grew up in the church and you know this, there's this uh, famous prayer that Jesus teaches. It's often called the Lord's Prayer. And there's a portion in that prayer where it says this, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Some translation says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So you know that was taught by the same person who says this. Doesn't it sound basically the same thing? Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now let me just make one comment about this. Don't judge. Okay, there, there's like, I want to make a distinction in that word. There's judge, make a discernment. There's judge, make a discernment. You look at a person and you're saying, I think this person is more likely to be a criminal. You may or may not be right. Or I think this person is coming from more like poor background. That isn't necessarily a judge like I look down on you. That's a discernment. Okay, you can make a discernment without judging in this way. There's judging where you look down. There's judging where you condemn. See, that's, how, how do I know this is the context? Because that's, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. See, like, that's like, judge and condemn are, they're synonymous words. So it doesn't mean that you turn your brain off and you don't make any discernments about people. Actually, you have to make discernments about people if you're going to love them. You have to make discernments about people in order to love them. But Jesus is saying, when you look at someone, don't be quick to condemn them. And did you notice, it comes right after the part where he says, love those who hate you. Do good to the ungrateful and the evil. The last portion is, like, don't be a hypocrite who looks at other people pointing at the speck in their own eye when you've got a big, gigantic log in your, own, in your eye. So all of this is connected to how you look at people. And what I mainly want to say to you today is our culture and our society and our city, like our, our church, Revived Church, you know, one of our core values is to love our city. I'm talking love the whole city. I'm talking, and you know, most of our city are, are filled with people who do not know God do not know the Bible, do not know Jesus, may very well hate Jesus. They very well hate Bible, God, Jesus, church for varying reasons, right? Sometimes it's even reasonable. They hate Christians because they've seen Christians act like such horrible jerks when they were young. Or in their past, they've just seen such terrible hypocrisy. But there may be just the just run-of-the-mill, like, I just like my sins, and they keep saying that, that it's sin, and I hate people who tell me that the things I like are sin. Right? All of that's going on. And yet, we're going to love our whole city. <laughs> we're going to love our whole city. And if our whole city is like, I hate these people, I hate these people, hair trigger quick to anger, quick to judge, quick to condemn, with no forgiveness. Because you guys all know there, there's no forgiveness in certain things. You cross certain lines in our city, bang, there's no forgiveness. Forgiveness, that's, that's crazy talk. You're a racist. You have to just lose your job and be canceled, right? We know that that's real. But let's love them. Let's love them. And let's have a country 
and let's have a city where we can love our neighbors and get back to this very basic piece of love, which is civility. How about civility? And let's not look at them and like, oh, they're white. They're, okay, that's still those kind of people. Oh, 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 they're, 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 they're conservative, those kind of people. Oh, they're liberal, they're, those kind of people. What I want to ask us is, let's not, let's not go into that place because our neighbors need less fear, less anxiety. They need neighborly civility. Don't you need it? I need it. I want to wake up and not wake up every day knowing that I'm going to walk through like a pollution-filled area of anger, anxiety, unforgiveness, condemnation. Okay? Let's go to part two. I'm going to do something that I rarely do, and it was more common when I was young. Okay? So we immigrated to the United States in 1976. Okay? And 1976, America was falling apart. It was bad. It was really bad. It's probably not unlike here this time. And um, so this odd Korean family <laughs> moves to the United States in this bad time of American history. And we lived in one of the most liberal places in America, Richmond, California, just north of Berkeley. And it's majority black. Majority black. And as you would imagine, lots of black people are not always happy with the way America's treated them. Okay? And rightfully so. So I grew up, look, I came to, I got to kindergarten, and before I ended kindergarten, I already knew that black people got basically got screwed over by white people, and that's before I got to kindergarten. Okay? I knew that. And yet, Black Americans in my neighborhood loved Thanksgiving. It was their holiday. It was a spiritual holiday. It's obvious that it was about being thankful to God and being thankful to God for America. Isn't that incredible? In one of the most liberal places in the country in a really bad time in American history. What I want to do is read a little bit about the first Thanksgiving. Do you guys know that Thanksgiving has been around for 400 years? It's longer than America's actually been around. So the first Thanksgiving is 1621. So we actually just had the 400th Thanksgiving in America. And I want to read to you from an article I read, which I read on Thanksgiving Day, and I was like, this is awesome. I want to share this with my church family. So, here's some important parts. The pilgrims set sail from Plymouth, England on the Cramp Mayflower in September 1620. The ship survived a 10-week ocean crossing, but was unseaworthy by the time it Return to England was dismantled by 1624. I didn't know that it went back, right? It says, if you're ever in Plymouth, Massachusetts, you should take a tour of the Mayflower II. It's a full-size replica built in the 1950s. This is really interesting. As a gift from Britain, <laughs> England built this thing, right? And it was recently refurbished. So next time I go visit my kids in Boston, we're going to go do this, okay? And then listen to this part. It will make you think hard about the courage required for 102 passengers and 30 crewmen to cross the North Atlantic in a wooden sailing vessel a little over 100 feet long and 25 feet wide. At times, they would hit ocean swells, waves that were as high as the mast. The mast is that tall thing. Would you want to get on that boat? I don't want to get on that boat. The pilgrims made landfall in November 1620, halfway between modern Boston and Cape Cod. They had intended to land in Virginia. <laughs> okay, so they were just a little off, okay? Which was warm, already had its own colonial government, 
was already colonized by English settlers from whom they, had, they could buy or trade for food and other provisions. So they thought they were going to civilization, or at least some kind of civilization. So, you know, like, um, it's not a coincidence that immigrants from other countries go to certain places. You know that? You know why there's all these Vietnamese people in San Jose? Because Vietnamese people from Vietnam find out that they're Vietnamese people in San Jose. So when they go to the United States, San Jose is one of the places they choose. Well, guess what? In 1620, it was exactly the same thing. <laughs> Except these folks are white and they're English. And they want to go to Virginia because that's where the other English folks are. But they kind of missed and ended up in Massachusetts. So I don't know if you're good at geography, but that's a big miss. So, here's what they said. Instead, they found themselves in a place unsettled and unclaimed by Europeans at the onset of a brutal Massachusetts winter. The early 17th century was the worst of the Little Ice Age. That's what they call it. Little Ice Age. I've been in Massachusetts. Okay, I first moved to Boston in the fall of 1993, and the winter of 93, 94 apparently was like the worst winter in like 50 years. I didn't know that. I had no basis of comparison. Let me tell you, it sucked. It was terrible. It was terrible. California boy in that? Are you kidding? Right? I didn't know you're not supposed to drive around on ice. <laughs> Driving around on ice, and basically like, I pulled over at a cop, and he could tell I was like stupid. He didn't give me a ticket and said, don't drive on this. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> that, like, that happened during that first winter. That winter was tame compared to this winter. That's what I'm trying to let you know. So, the early 17th century was the worst of the Little Ice Age, a period of global cooling that lasted from about 1300 to 1850. The winter of 1620 to 21 was a cruel one. The article goes on to say they had no government. How are we going to make it? So they formed this thing called the Mayflower Compact. So I won't get into that portion, but I don't know if you guys understand that the Constitution was started, you know, we ratified this thing, our country, in 1789. Okay? That's a long time after this. But it's not like Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and all our founding fathers wrote one of the most brilliant and important political documents of all history. Like, they just woke up and said, hey, we know how to write the be one of the best governing documents ever. Let's just write that up. It started sometime. The Constitution didn't just come out of nowhere. It came out of a history. And they took many, many iterations of people and the Mayflower Compact is one of the very, very first iterations that led to the kind of freedom that we have. Okay? And it started in the middle of a really cruel winter. Right? Let me go on. It talks about, this next portion is interesting. In the article, it's, the, it's entitled Providence Provides. Do you guys know what providence is? Providence is a big word that means God sovereignly shapes history. That's basically what it means. Providence provides is saying that God provides. So when I was a five-year-old boy in Richmond, California, I thought, I guess this is America. They just teach you that God provides in the public school. My black teacher, second grade teacher, talking about Providence, Thanksgiving, to a room that's like all black except one white kid, one Chinese kid, and me, <laughs> right? Providence provides is God provides. So let me read this. Oh, it's worth it. Listen. You can't eat constitutions or liberty. With insufficient food and inadequate winter clothing... They don't even have good winter clothing, okay? It's not like you could just go to the nearby Target and pick up something good. 
and unable to build permanent shelters away from the ship on frozen ground, nearly half the pilgrims did not live to see the spring of 1621. That's how, right off the beginning. Let alone the first Thanksgiving or the flourishing of the new colony. So at the first Thanksgiving in 1621, a number of people were missing because they had died. Right? 45 of the 102 passengers perished. With the aid and instruction, I don't know how to pronounce this, because Wampanoags, I think that's how you pronounce it. The local Native American tribe, the Wampanoags, the pilgrims were able to plant corn and other crops in the spring, establishing the basis for their survival. Contrary to myth, the Wampanoags were not unfamiliar with the white man, and neither were they naively charitable in aiding the newcomers. This was over a century after Columbus and Cortez. Europeans had been up and down the Atlantic coast, even if they had established few permanent settlements in North America. So, uh, John Smith, you know, explored the region of 16th and called it New England. There's a guy named Tisquantum, and most of you guys know him as Squanto, spoke English because he had been captured five years earlier by an English ship that sold him into slavery in Spain. So let's just back up just a moment. How the heck can you communicate with these people? Well, there's at least a guy named Squanto who used to be a slave, which is a form of oppression, which is normal back then. But there's the blessing that he can speak English. Right? So between 1616 and 1619, so this is just a few years before, the local tribes, now listen to this, this part is incredible. And I've studied Native American history in North America and South America, and this is totally normal. And a lot of people don't know about this, okay? But listen, between 1616, the local tribes, and 1619, so three years, the local tribes lost at least two-thirds of their own people, as high as 80 to 90% for some tribes. So, the pilgrims, the pilgrims, by the way, are Christians. The pilgrims have a theology which is pretty close to our theology, by the way. Okay, they have a Calvinist Reformed theology, which is our theology in our church. It's a rigorous biblical theology. And they do not like being oppressed by the Anglican government. That's why they're making this dangerous journey, right? Which is another set of Christians. And they come here. And 45 out of 102 die. But among the Native Americans in the previous 1616 and 1619, you have whole tribes that lost 80 to 90% of their people. How? Because of a colossal pandemic of European diseases for which they had no immunity. So if you think COVID is bad, there's nothing compared to the fact that white people, or maybe not quite so white people, because some are Spaniards and Spaniards aren't as white, come to the new world, and they're not just spreading one disease. I mean, they're not doing anything like evil. Like, they're, they're not trying to be bad, but they bring all these diseases that they've already died of, bubonic plague and all this other stuff, and now they have immunity, but these people don't. So just as in 2021, 2020 to 20, people found a rampaging disease baffling and disruptive of their way of life, and they're relieved to see it subside. So it's getting better. The pilgrims' relations with the tribes were uneasy from the beginning, but the pandemic had left the Wampanoags in straits nearly as desperate as their own. So the English pilgrims are desperate. The Wampanoags are hurting. Not for the last time a Native American tribe saw a strategic alliance with the Europeans and their superior weapons as the lesser evil compared with some of their old tribal enemies. 
that in one sentence is a really good summary of Native American history for the first half with white America, okay? Spaniards in South America mostly just murdered and raped and pillaged folks in South America. It's mostly awful and horrible, okay? A lot of genocide and just horrible, okay? But that wasn't the case with English and French folks who came to North America. In North America, for most of the early history, Native Americans are killing each other. And then when the white man shows up with better technology and sometimes new things, they're like, hey, can we trade with you? We have something you need. Why don't you give us something you, we need? And then that will give us an advantage with some of these other people that hate us and kill us. So that's going on, even though they don't particularly maybe like the white man. And that's the way it was. There was, a, there was some animosity, but the stuff that you get where, like, um, you know, white America is becoming ascendant and killing Native Americans, you don't get that to the 1800s. In the 1600s, it's not like that. That's the complex history, okay? Let me read this next paragraph, and then we'll get to the last part of my message, okay? When they discovered that the pilgrims were having a harvest feast to give thanks for their survival, the Wampanoags, who had not been invited, joined in and brought their own offerings of food. The table setting was not exactly what you would picture today. The pilgrims did not wear buckled hats. The Wampanoags did not have feathered headdresses. And it wasn't like turkey was on the menu. Okay? But there was peace and feasting and the giving of thanks for all how all assembled had survived their trials. This is Thanksgiving. This is Thanksgiving the American way. And it's humble. It's remembering that no one set of people has it all put together. And life is hard. And you lose your loved ones. And you could starve. And yet, God provides neighbors. Sometimes they have a different skin color. Sometimes you don't like them. You might even think they're evil and ungrateful. And yet, our Father in Heaven is merciful to them and to us. And He provides mercy and grace. And I remember when America still believed this. The non-Christians and the Christians. I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area, okay? And when I grew up in the Bay Area, you could have a fundamentalist, <laughs> like, flaming fundamentalist Christian, his next door neighbor is like a flaming gay person, and those people both celebrated Thanksgiving and got along just fine. That was totally normal when I was young. And yet, that is not normal today. And... Can we be thankful that there could be a country? Because, you know, all around the world, it is normal that people tribalize and hate and judge and condemn. And then when the bottom drops out, there's only your tribe to lean toward. But at least in the history of America, it wasn't always that way. And there was a hope. And of course America is a sinful country. And of course we have failures of justice. Of course we do. Of course we have a terrible racism in our country. And of course white America has killed and done terrible things in Native Americans. I love Native Americans. I've studied that history. And out of love for Native Americans, I have found things that make me so mad. I'm not even talking about like 1850. I'm talking about 1950. I'm talking about 1990. I'm talking about 2005 things that white America has done to my Native American friends that make me really mad. <laughs> Yet, this, this civility is like an American grace. And what I want to ask is, can we get something of it back to the bigger grace 
that is the gospel. So I want to close my message this way. Verse 37 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And I've been thinking about this verse a lot for years, but even more since COVID started. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. If you give, it'll be given back to you. A good measure. So like, it's like, you, you guys know it's like, there's like, you get something and then you have to press it down to like get, you know, you have a basket. And if you want more in that basket, you have to press it down to get more into it. It's pressed down. And then you have to shake it together. So you have to shake it to get even more down. You shake it together. So like, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's an agricultural metaphor. You, you get a basket, you have to harvest, you put it down, you have to press all the good stuff down, and then you have to shake it, so all the, you get it down, and then, and then you put it, and it runs all over. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's taking this agricultural metaphor of harvest, and he's saying, give this way, and it'll be given to you. Give this way, and it'll be given to you. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. So first I want to give the, a warning. And then let me give you the gospel. Here's the warning. If you will say, everybody knows this, and if you fall short of this, then you're below my righteousness. You're bad. You know what Jesus is saying? That's the standard by which you want to live. Then God will say, if that's the way you want to live, you want to live under the law of your own righteousness, Okay, we'll let that come back to you. Maybe God will say, apparently you do not want to live under the reign of my grace. Instead, you'd rather live under the reign of your righteousness, the law of your righteousness. Then I'll only get back to you however good your righteousness is. Because isn't that all you want? Do you really want to be under the kingship and law of our righteousness. And if we're going to be quick to anger and judge and treat other people this way, we're saying we'd rather be children of the world and living as kings under me and my righteousness. So that's my warning. Don't choose that. Don't choose that. Choose Something that seems weird. It seems crazy. It seems stupid. <laughs> it actually seems stupid. Let's give with good measure. Let's press it down and let's give more. Let's give our time and our heart and our forgiveness. Yes, let's even give our money to our neighbors and to our city and to the ungrateful and to the evil. Let's give to them. And now why? Because you're just a good person? Because isn't this just a description of what Jesus did for you? Isn't this just a description of what Jesus did for us? He came. He came to give. He came to give with good measure, <laughs> infinite. He came and he pressed it down so he can give us more. He shook it together so he gives us more. And then, he could, and then when we fail him, he is slow to anger. He takes away our wrath so that he could give us more joy, so that he can give us more riches, so he can give us more of his love, so he can give us more himself, so that he could do that for you Forever. It'll never stop. So I want to close with this. I, um, I've been thinking about, I've shared this with, the, for those of you who've listened to my sermons, you, you kind of know about this period of my life. There was this period of my life 
when I was a poor graduate student, I was at a PhD in, in, uh, in systematic theology. Let me tell you, a PhD student in systematic theology, especially at Westminster Seminary, is poor. <laughs> okay. We had run out of our savings. And um, I was feeling sorry for myself, but not willing to admit it. And I was in a cold war against God because he seemed mean to me. And I felt low and pathetic as a provider and as the head of my household. And we were going into debt. So, honestly, it's nothing compared to the pilgrims, okay? But it felt like my winter. And it lasted several years. And we would drive to this. We got a really nice deal on this townhouse. And it was in a really modest part of the suburbs. There's nothing cool about that area. And what I liked about it was it was near Walmart. <laughs> and uh, I was like, that house is only $220,000. I'm from Silicon Valley. That's crazy that you can get a 1,600-square-foot, three-bedroom house that's $220,000. And if I go apply to this bank and they make me a teller, I bet you in about a year or two, they'll make me into a manager. And then after a couple years after, they'll make me the manager's manager. And then I'll buy that house. And my kids will be out of debt. And my kids, I won't feel like such a loser. Because in the short term of my life, this is what it felt like. And I did not believe that because Jesus is my Savior, God is my Father. And He loves me with good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. I believed He was stingy. I believed that I was on my own. I believed I was a loser. I wouldn't actually admit that because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to be godly. Instead, I'm sitting around like secretly looking at porn like a loser, making my marriage go down the drain because I had stopped believing in this. And you know what? I found out that in that period that Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I've been thinking about that during this period. So I'll tell you what makes me think about it. Wellesley College, where my daughter goes to college, takes out a chunk of my money out of my bank account to pay tuition. It's like I'm on a four payment per semester <laughs> schedule, okay? In November, the fourth scheduled payment for the fall semester of my daughter went out of my bank account. And you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, dude, no problem. Jesus has been slow to anger. And he has loved me. And he has loved me. And this is mine forever. Forever and ever. I have it now. I don't have to wait till I get to heaven. I have it now. Brothers and sisters, you're the same. If you have Jesus, pressed down, good measure, shaken together and running over. This is the grace and goodness of God to you. He is so, so good to you. And our friends and our neighbors who are angry or maybe even evil and ungrateful, they're like, they're, they're like scared in the world and like, like they're just so fixated on the, like the short term of this world. But you, you are secure and loved by a God who forgives you and is slow to anger. So just be joyful and give with big hearts. And let's be thankful that we can live in a country like this and we get to live this way. We get to give 
the grace of Jesus that we have received. Let's pray. Lord, we are like slaves to the short term. We are slaves to our narratives. We are slaves to our greed and to our fears and our anxieties about our money and our future and our security. Or whatever lack of justice that we perceive, which may even be real. That lack of justice is probably true and real. Because of course we are surrounded by the ungrateful and the evil. And sometimes we are the ungrateful of the evil. And yet, how could it be true that you, Almighty God, who had come to be born and placed in a feeding trough so that you, Lord, could be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for us and so that we can receive your grace, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over forever and ever and ever. Help us to believe this, know this, not just as some dead fact in our head, but as a living hope and a joy in our hearts. And it runs over into a grace and a kindness and a forgiveness that spreads civility and peace and joy to our neighbors in this dark city. I pray that this Advent season, this Christmas season, Boy, do we need a good one, Lord. Help us to climb out of the darkness of COVID into the light of your grace through a new and grace-filled civility from the gospel. Put this in our hearts so we can give this to our city and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.